he would serve you rightly and glorify you. I pray this all in the name of our blessed Lord, Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, dear friends, please turn now to Luke chapter 9. We're walking through verses 1 through 9 this morning. Let's go ahead and read that passage of Scripture. And Luke writes, he says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. There's three points that I want us to pull out of this passage, three areas that I think that we can emphasize of particular importance within this passage that have particular applications as well within our lives and our understanding as a church and our lives individually as Christians. And we see here this first point, this defeating the works of Satan and proclaiming the kingdom of God. These apostles were sent forward into the land to go forward and to defeat the works of Satan. They were standing against the consequences of sin, the consequences of the work of Satan, and they were declaring Jesus as king, as ruler. They were declaring the kingdom of God. They weren't going out just to reason with people. They were going out to make this declaration regarding what is true. Secondly, We see the apostles, as they went forward, we see a dependence upon the word of God while proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus gave them specific commands as they went forward that were unique to this time as they went out, and they were to walk in obedience to those commands. They were not the way you would normally go on to a journey. They were not how you would normally do a missions endeavor. You would normally make certain preparations, but Jesus was commanding them to go forward and not make any preparation whatsoever. Rather, they were to rely upon the Lord to provide for them and to grant them the provisions they needed in this journey and in this mission endeavor. And thirdly, we see dumbfounded pagans under the proclamation of the kingdom of God. We see the apostles going forward. And yes, I chose a D for that third point so that I could have an alliteration in this one. So we have defeating, dependence, and dumbfounded. The dumbfounded pagans under the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Herod is perplexed. He doesn't understand what is going on. He rules his kingdom in a certain way. He rules his kingdom with the sword. And that is not how the kingdom of God is brought forward. The kingdom of God is being declared. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is ruling within the hearts of man. And the apostles are going forward declaring this truth, declaring what it is, declaring what God is already doing. They could believe this 
or they could not believe it. But Jesus was still sovereign. Jesus was still Lord. Jesus was the one who brought all things into existence from absolutely nothing. And Jesus was the promised one that would come forward and would save his people. Jesus is the promised one who would come forward and crush the head of the devil through his work. So let's look at that first point. And we see there defeating the works of Satan and proclaiming the kingdom of God. We see that here in the first two verses of Luke chapter 9. It says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And I want you to envision it in this way. And I've mentioned this, this picture as well previously. But this is how you need to see this. Jesus is sending his people forward. He's sending them forward into the promised land. That land that had been promised to the Jews. And just as you had the Israelites that went forward into the promised land. And the Israelites were defeating the Canaanites. And were taking control over that area. That is the same idea that you need to see here. But you need to see it in a spiritual way. You need to understand that this is a spiritual battle that is happening. They're not running for offices. They're not first and foremost going up to Herod and trying to get his attention. They are going forward and declaring the kingdom of God. They're going forward and declaring Jesus as Lord, as sovereign, as king. They're declaring the will of God. And you have that even communicated in the fact that Jesus chose 12 apostles. Just as there were 12 tribes of Israel, you have 12 apostles here and they're being commissioned by the Lord to go forward and trust on the, in the Lord as they're walking forward to defeat these enemies before them, which is Satan and his minions. And this is a theme that you have flowing throughout the Gospels and it's a theme that we've emphasized previously and it's a theme that Luke will continue to bring forward and that as idea of cleansing this land of the Lord going forward and establishing his kingdom here amongst the people and the irony is the Jewish people are in this area the Jewish people are living in this land but just as they are being ruled by the Romans just as they are in a way enslaved to the Romans Many of them are enslaved to their own sin. And so that's being communicated there as well, that the slavery to the Romans that is there is also communicating this idea that we have that they are a slave to their sin and they need to be freed in this area. So they're going forward as well and they are healing people. They are um, healing people of diseases. They're ridding people that are possessed by demons. We saw the man possessed by a legion of demons just on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that was an incredible, incredible story. A sad, sad passage where this man had been full of a legion of demons. And this man had been running around. He was naked. He was injuring himself. He was injuring other people. And the Lord Jesus freed him. He was saved from this tyranny of Satan. He was saved from this tyranny of these, this demonic effect upon his life. And they were sent even into 2,000 pigs. And the people were sad. The people were not joyful that this man had life. The people were not joyful that this man had been given his life, that he had been sitting there clothed. Remember that picture of redemption that we saw? He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. 
What a picture of redemption. What a picture of one who has been saved by grace and through faith. That they have, they have a, a new way of living. A new way of behaving. A new way of worshiping. We all worship something. We all worship someone. And the people were fearful. They asked Jesus to leave. So just as he was establishing authority there over those demons ordering them. They were even begging him. They're trying to negotiate with him. Look, don't throw us into the abyss. Have you, have you come? We saw that in other gospels. Have you come already to torment us? Have you come already to throw us into the abyss? Is the time already come? The orthodoxy of these demons. I, I still ponder that and it's, it's fascinating. Their orthodoxy in seeing Jesus as Lord, their eschatology and recognizing that Jesus is going to judge the world. Jesus is going to judge Satan and his minions. Is it this time already? We thought we had a little bit of time left. So just as he was establishing, was declaring his power, showing his power over those demonic forces, he is showing his power here through these miracles that the apostles will do and ridding people of demons, and even healing people. And we don't need to see it this way. We, we don't need to see every time someone is sick, that specifically is because of some sin that that person is doing, or because there's a particular demon in some way that's affecting them. We talked about someone a couple weeks back named Richard Ng that wrote just an incredibly absurd book called Spiritual Warfare, and it was incredibly superstitious. And he had all kinds of ideas regarding demons and, and how they affected you. And, and any little thing that was wrong with you, any sin that you had was a demon of, of cheating or a, or a demon of adultery or a demon of pride. If you didn't believe, remember that? If you didn't believe that these were demons that were affecting you in these particular ways to lead you to commit these particular sins, then that certainly must mean that you have the demon of pride, which is an incredible way to debate. But there's others that can get into a wrong area here and begin to see each and every sickness or cancer that someone may have is, is a direct effect of a, a demonic activity or the work of the devil. And that's not how you need to see it, but you do need to see this. This is the picture you need to walk away with in a passage like this, that the apostles going forward and, and healing people at this time is fighting against the works of the devil. This is in a general way, because why do you have sickness and death? Because man fell. Why did man fall? Because Satan tempted man. And man joined an alliance with Satan. And so the wages of sin is death. The consequences, the consequences of man falling, the consequences of the fall, one of the consequences is that we have been affected in our bodies. Our minds have been affected. Our emotions have been affected. And so the fact that this is a consequence of the fall, we can say this is the work of the devil, and we're saying this in a very general way. And so going forward at this time is, is them fighting against the works of the devil in a general way. And this is also looking forward in an eschatological way, remembering what the Lord is going to ultimately do, that he is going to resurrect our bodies. And we are no longer going to have the effects of sin upon our bodies. It's also communicating, remember this, what the Lord is doing in the life of a sinner spiritually, bringing someone to life, giving someone new understanding, giving someone a, a, a healing them spiritually. 
This is what you see in these various miracles that are happening where people are given their sight, they're given their hearing, their, their ability to walk around. They are in a right state of mind. All of these things are pointing to what Jesus does for the sinner in bringing them to life, in regenerating them. It's the power that is being declared. And this is a very, very important declaration that is being given. And they are given power and authority. Power and authority. Philip Graham Ryken says this. He says, power is the ability to do something. Authority is the right to do it. And the apostles needed both. We don't need to read a passage like this and think that we're lacking in some way because we don't have the ability to go out and perform these particular miracles and be cautious of those that would, lead, that would begin to guilt trip you as though you're, you're missing something. You must understand the miracles that were being done here in the scriptures were incredible miracles. These weren't people just coming onto a stage and then someone's hitting them with their jacket and saying, don't take your insulin anymore, or you don't need this anymore, or doing some little silliness with someone's leg and saying, look, their, their leg grew back after I did these things and moved their legs around. That's not how we determine these things. That's not how we determine whether or not you should take your insulin anymore. That's very dangerous. No, you had people whose limbs were growing back. You had people who were lame, were not able to walk the entirety of their lives. And their limbs were growing back. They had the ability to suddenly walk. People who could not see for their entire life were suddenly given the ability to see. There's no one that is doing that. This is something that is looking forward to what will ultimately happen. It's reminding us of what the Lord does in the life of a sinner that comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's also declaring the power of Jesus. So they needed power and they needed authority. Think of it this way. You need both of those things. Law enforcement has the authority to fight against, let's say, drug cartels. But as we've seen historically, sometimes they don't always have the power to bring it about. So they have the authority to do something, but they may not have the power. And you may have the power to do something else and not the authority to do it. They have the power and the authority that is given to them as they go forward at this time to heal, to drive out demons, and to declare the kingdom of God. And we need to bring this into to balance as well. You need to remember here as well that everyone wasn't, wasn't healed at this time. And even now, there are those, and I want to emphasize this once more, there are those that will share to you a, a false gospel. They will share to you this idea that God's will for everyone at all times is that they would be healed. And here's what ends up happening. You end up guilt-tripping the person that, that doesn't end up being healed. You end up putting a great amount of guilt and judgment upon that person. Remember, many years back, we had Justin Peters came to speak to us. And he was a man who, who has suffered in many ways. He is a man who is crippled in certain ways and is not able to move around as most people are able to move around. And he would go to some of these services. He'd go to like a Benny Hinn service. And interesting as it was, they would never let him on the stage. He was the one that had to stay on the back. It was only the ones that came forward with merely crutches or in a wheelchair that would come up, but not anyone that actually had a, a, a serious illness or a serious problem with them that needed to be healed. And he will tell you that he suffered greatly under this. He began to question himself, well, am I even saved? Do I truly believe in the Lord? But it was the word of God that blessed him. 
It's the word of God that blessed him and that seeing that it was God's will that he would be in this state, that God would use even this difficulty in his life for his good purpose. And it's blessed him in many ways, and he's able to see it that way as well. There are some that were healed in this time period in the, in the Gospels, and they did not believe. Remember the lepers. Ten of them were healed. Only one came back. Only one was saved of his sins. That's the idea that we have that is communicated in that. Only one believed. Remember also, most of the apostles were martyred. They were not signing up for health and wealth and prosperity. They were signing up for great difficulty. They were not living lives of luxury. They weren't living lives of opulence. And in the midst of this, they were declaring the kingdom of God. They were declaring Jesus' rule over his kingdom. And Jesus was working on the people from the inside outward through the work of the word and the spirit of God. The word of God declared and the spirit of God working on a person as well, illuminating even that word that the person may have understanding and opening the eyes of that person spiritually, giving the person understanding, declaring this kingdom. Phil Graham Riken makes this point regarding the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is not a territory protected by an army or an empire on a map, but a sovereign dominion over the hearts of God's people. God's kingdom is God's rule, his royal authority and sovereign reign. God is the king, so whatever he is, the kingdom is. The kingdom is present wherever God exercises his kingly power and wherever people honor and serve him as king. That is the declaration that is being given. Look at what Jesus says about his kingdom in Luke 17 and verses 20 and 21. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or therefore, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So Jesus, as he was going forward, as the spirit was working within the hearts of man, this was the kingdom of God coming forward. And this is what they are doing. They are going forward declaring the lordship of Jesus Christ. They are going forward, declaring his authority, declaring his reign, declaring him as fully God and fully man, as the one who was given, as the one who was brought forward to lay down his life for his people. That's what they are doing. This is the Greek word we have here for preaching is this idea of, of keruso, this is the word that is like the, the town crier. Remember back in the day when, when they, you know, newspapers weren't even as prevalent as they are now, or even the times when you had newspapers. Remember the, the newspaper boy in the middle of the town square as people were going through, and he, he's making a declaration, a declaration that you still see in certain countries, like in Great Britain when a new sovereign takes over. When a queen dies and the new king takes over, there is one that stands in the midst of the town and makes this declaration, declares this to be true. That, that, that person at that time, that town crier, that one that is declaring this truth, is preaching and is declaring it. He, he's not negotiating it with people. He's not trying to say, well, wh what do you think? Would you have the, this, this, this ruler to be king? It is a declaration, this idea of just declaring it. And they had authority to make this declaration. They were being commissioned for that purpose. And that's the very thing that we as a church are called to do. There is time to have conversations. There is time to interact with people. But we are not apologizing 
for our doctrine. We are not apologizing for the, the rule in the reign of Christ. That is what he is. That is who he is. That is who he is regardless of what, what anyone else thinks. And the reality is it's not something that makes a lot of sense from a worldly standpoint. That's not the best way to, to win friends and influence people just to declare it to be true, just to come forward and say this is absolutely the case. But this is what the apostles did. This is how Paul writes within his letters. This is how Jesus speaks. John the Baptist overwhelmingly just declared this is how it is. Paul says this in Romans 1 in verses 16 and 17. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And you have that happening right here. It is going to the Jew first. He is commanding them only to go forward amongst the Jews at this time, not to go to the Samaritans, not to go over to the areas of, of the Gentiles. And it's incredible some of those that have just very erroneous ideas, ideas that I would say are the most anti-Semitic ideas that you could possibly have. I saw this just this week that a, um, someone named Paula White, who puts herself forward as a, a preacher, she declared that you should not share the gospel with the Jews. She has no reason to share the gospel with the Jews, and she's not the first person to say this. John Hagee is one that put forward this, this faulty idea as well. This idea that it's not necessary to share the gospel with Jews because they already have a way to be saved that God gave them in the Old Testament. As though the gospel is only here for Gentiles. No, Paul says here in Romans 1 that it is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And it came to the Jews First, this is the promised one that was promised early in the scriptures that was declared that he would come and it was prophesied that when he come that there would be great changes that happened, that people would be healed, that people would be given sight, that people would be freed from prison. And that's what's happening here. And that is necessary for all people everywhere. The only means that you come to faith the only means that you, you are justified, the only means that you can have your sins forgiven is by coming to Jesus Christ alone. It's absolutely necessary regardless of who you are. It is Christ alone. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus told the Jews that he is the door. You must enter through that narrow gate. You must enter through Jesus. All of the ceremonial law was pointing to Jesus. All of the ceremonial law was pointing to the ways in which it was insufficient, that it did not provide the necessary salvation, but could only point you to the one that would provide that salvation, and that was Jesus. Likewise, they're given power, and we are given power as well as a church. The Lord has given us power to walk in our mission. The Lord has given us power whereby we can walk in faithfulness, we see this in Ephesians 3 and verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power, with power through his spirit in your inner being. 
And the Lord will strengthen you. The Lord will give you his Holy Spirit. The Lord will bless you in this way. And in the giving of the Spirit, this is not some idea that you're going to fall upon the ground and lose consciousness. This is not the idea that you're going to begin to speak in all kinds of words that nobody understands and that someone's got to translate it or it's some kind of an angelic language. That is not the filling of the Holy Spirit. That is not even the work of God. That is not even Christian behavior. It's a very new idea, honestly, in the history of the church that that would be understood and interpreted as Christian behavior. It wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century at the Azusa Street Revival that you began to have people behaving in this way. This is paganism. These are pagan ideas, and you can see these behaviors in other false religions, and they are not Christian. That is not the power of the Holy Spirit. That is not the feeling of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is to work within you to give you strength whereby you can walk in obedience to God's command. And they were walking in obedience here to the command that Jesus gave them, and Jesus likewise has given us commands that we'll continue to unpack as we walk through this. This is the promises that John MacArthur says this. He says the church today has that same responsibility to preach exactly what Jesus did without altering it. The church's message is not a social, political, uh, philanthropic, or moral one. It is a message of sin, salvation, and forgiveness, which without being changed has been explained and enriched in the New Testament epistles. This is a declaration of what is true. It is a declaration of the law and a declaration of the gospel. And help us that we would not confuse those two. They are both necessary. They are both important. They are both important for the one who knows not the Lord. And they are both important for the one who has been saved by grace and through faith in Christ Jesus. And we must be cautious that we walk in accordance to what God has commanded us to do. We must be cautious not to change based upon whatever is happening in the culture. The culture is like shifting sand. We must not be ashamed of the gospel. We must not be ashamed of the word of God, regardless of what changes on the outside. Jesus Christ and his word are like a rock. And if you will build your life upon that rock, there is a steadiness. There is a sturdiness that is there. Regardless of what happens outside in your life, you could even lose your own life. You could lose your wealth. You could lose your family. You could lose all that you worked for in your life. And you will have more in Christ than the entirety of the riches of this world. It's my prayer that she would remember that, that she would believe that. So we see these apostles going forward, defeating the works of Satan, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And secondly, we see a dependence upon the word of God while proclaiming the kingdom of God, a dependence upon the word of God while declaring the kingdom of God. Let's look at verses 3 through 5 in Luke chapter 9. It says, and he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart, and whatever they do, do not, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, what are we to do with a passage like this? Am I to take this passage and open it up and, and say, well, Jesus is talking directly to me in this passage, and I need to be obedient to exactly what he's commanding the apostles here, because that is how Jesus would always have his people act in all times, anywhere, regardless of what else is happening. No, 
That is bad hermeneutics. Jesus is not directly talking to you in this passage. He's talking directly to his apostles. And he is not teaching this idea that it is wrong to ask for support um, or to let others know that you have particular needs. That is not an idea that is, that is mentioned here. It doesn't teach us that when someone goes on a journey, when someone goes on a missionary journey, that they should make no provision whatsoever and make no plans whatsoever as they go forward in that journey. Now, there are some in church history, and some of these people I respect, and I may not agree with how they would look at a passage like this or, or understand uh, missions as a whole, and I'll explain that shortly. But someone like George Mueller is the one who was used by the Lord. He's one who supported an orphanage for many years. He never asked for any provision. It was, it was so significant that there were days that all the orphans, this is the story, rather, that we have in these books, and they're, they're quite incredible. I will I will admit, but these are the stories that we have in these biographies. And the, the orphans all gathered around the breakfast table, and they had absolutely no provision whatsoever. But Mueller went ahead and prayed that the Lord would bless the provision and bless the meal. And wouldn't you know what? Someone knocked on the door, and they said, I just feel the Lord leading me to bring you some bread. And another time, there was a milk truck who got a flat tire Right in the front of the right in the front of the orphanage, is like, well, we we need to get rid of this milk. If we don't give it to you, it's all going to go bad. And there's story after story like this in the life of of George uh, Mueller. But we must understand that even though the Lord blessed him in many ways and the Lord supported these orphans, we don't need to take stories of George Mueller in in. Put them as a, as a bondage on other people or a requirement for missionaries going out. In fact, I'm going to encourage you that to walk in accordance with what the Lord has told us to do as a church. We're going to need to make provisions and be mindful and be good stewards of, of what it is that the Lord gives to us. And that means that we're going to need to make provision. We're going to need to communicate certain ideas. This is something that's special is being shown here. This is like the Jews going out into the wilderness and the Lord just providing for them. That's the picture you need to see here. Like the Jews were going forward and they were cleansing the land. That's what the apostles are doing here. They're going forward into the land, this land that people live in, and they assume that we, you know, we are children of Abraham. We're slaves of no one. The idea is that, no, this land is actually infected. This land is actually um, corrupted, and it's corrupted within the hearts of the people that are living in there. And so that's the work that is being done right here. There's other times where Jesus sends his apostles out and he sends them out and he tells them to make provision. Look at one of these instances. We'll see that in Luke 22 and verses 36 through 38. He says, he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, look, here are two swords, and he said to them, it is enough. Now there is a little bit of a, you know, an argument we can make from a passage like this, that um, God, there, you have a right to defend your life and defend the lives of other people. You could look even to the fact that that is a positive understanding of the sixth commandment, which says do not murder. And if I'm not going to murder, I'm likewise going to protect the life of someone else, including my own. Um, but really what I want you to see in that passage is that that's totally different than what Jesus is telling them here in Luke 9. So we can't take a passage like this in Luke 9 and say this is how Jesus would have us live at all times 
everywhere because that's not even what Jesus does as we get further down in the Gospel of Luke. Furthermore, we don't see Paul living that way. We see Paul going to work. He's a tent maker. He's intentionally working and building tents to make a profit for himself, to support himself so that he won't have to depend upon churches because there's certain people in the churches um, that may believe that he's one who's just peddling this religion for the purpose of enriching himself. But he went forward and worked, and it was a good thing. It was appropriate for him to do that. What we need to see here is that they are going forward in faith. The Lord is commanding them to go forward to do that which would not normally be appropriate, that which would be absurd just to go forward, not even bring a water bottle with you to bring no money whatsoever and just walk into this area and assume that you're going to be provided for. He is commanding them to do that, that they would lean upon his power and so that he can communicate this idea that just as the Israelites were going into the promised land, so the apostles are going in here to do the work of God. We also need to see that this idea is that they were to do exactly what Jesus said. I mean, just as Moses was commanded, this is how you build a tabernacle. Build it just like this. Remember when we preached through Exodus and we had the, the long passages and it went through in detail. This is exactly how you are to build a tabernacle. And then we had shortly after that the explanation of declaration. This is exactly how they did it. They were not to be creative. They were not to do their own Thing. So what do we do with a passage like this? How do we do, we deal with the instruction that we have here? Um, we must understand that we are called to trust God where we have and where we are. We must not use a passage like this to guilt trip ourselves or someone else. We must not use a passage like this to in some way have the idea that, well, this is just a holier person because they're following the Lord's command right here. This is just a holier person because they're trusting God in this way and someone else is, is not. Um, Paul says you should work. He said if a man doesn't work, he should not eat. So there's a commandment there that you would work, that you would be regularly and ordinarily working and making provision for yourself and taking care of yourself, not just so you can take care of yourself, but what does Paul go on to say? That you can go and you can give to other people. How best to be obedient to the eighth commandment that I would not steal, not just that I wouldn't pilfer off other people, but that I would provide for myself, but positively live out the eighth commandment in such a way that I can give to other people and to support them. And that's something that is normal in a way that you're normally going to live your life. And that's what he's commanding them to do here, though, which is different. He's commanding them to go forward and he's commanding them to walk in obedience and trust in his word, just as the Israelites were given specific commands. We understand this in hermeneutics as being a positive commandment. Jesus is giving them a special commandment at this time that they are to follow. You see the Israelites given special commandments at certain times. We see that, we understand this as Reformed Baptists, that the ceremonial law, they were given positive commandments. They were given judicial laws. These are positive commandments. Positive commandments are to be understood in addition to the moral law of God. All people everywhere are required to keep the moral law of God. We see that summarized in the Ten Commandments. We see the Ten Commandments summarized in the two greatest commandments that Jesus gives. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He's summarizing the first four commandments in loving God and summarizing the last six commandments in understanding that we should love other people. Other commandments that are given besides that, we call them 
positive commandments. The same is true for the church. We are commanded to participate in the Lord's Supper and take it in certain ways. We are commanded to participate in baptism. We understand these to be what is known as positive commandments. And so you're required to walk in accordance to it, but it's important to understand who that command was given to. And when you see a positive command like this, you must look back and understand it hermeneutically who that commandment was given to. You don't just take a positive commandment from someplace in the Bible, all right? This is superstitious. You go and just take a positive commandment from somewhere else in the Bible that wasn't given to you, that you aren't to understand as being directly given to you, and then begin to walk around and command other people to walk in this. That is legalism. That is, that is inappropriate. There is an entire book in the New Testament that speaks against that behavior. That is the book of Galatians. Also, you must not walk around following such a positive commandment and think of yourself as though you are holier than someone else, as though you are walking in a way that is more obedient to the word of God. We must understand these positive commandments in their context and understand them in regard to the people they are written to. So what do we do? What do I do, what do, I do with a passage like this? We must not take from it the idea um, that, that, that I have to follow these commandments, but I can take from it this, that God has given us particular commandments regarding how we are to behave as a church, how we are to behave as individuals, and we can trust in God that he will provide for us and the means that he has promised in those times. So you must be faithful as you walk in the circumstances that the Lord has you in. So just as the, the apostles here were provided for as they went forward and they could trust in the Lord for their provision, likewise you, dear church, can trust in the Lord that he will be faithful to you to give you all that you need to walk in obedience. We were reading Daniel 3 this week in family worship and I was particularly moved by that passage. You know, it's a, it's a passage that as a young child, it was in all the, you know, the, the children's story Bibles. You always have Daniels in the lion's den. You always have the three young Hebrew men who are being thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar. And the, the fourth person that, that is there, and they all walk out, and they are safe. They don't even smell like fire. They don't even smell singed. And meanwhile, it was so hot that even those that threw them into this fiery furnace, they died in the process of throwing them in. They were, they were given this opportunity to stand firm, and they did. They trusted God even to their death. And I love, I love what they say. They, they give such a testimony. They make a declaration to Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, God will save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your statue. We are going to walk in obedience to our Lord because he has saved us and he has given us life and we will not profane our profession to him. We will not use his name in vain by bowing down to this idol. We will not violate the first commandment by worshiping one who is not the true God. And they stood faithful in that even to death. And that is what you can take away from a passage like this that you can trust in the Lord for your provision. You can trust in the Lord that he will give you all that is necessary, all that you need. And I can't think of a better month to bring this up in than the month of June, where all over our culture there is this emphasis 
upon supporting one of the greatest violations of the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. There is this emphasis that the culture as a whole needs to give a nod, needs to give a sway, needs to give an affirmation and an acceptance of a violation of the seventh commandment through homosexual behavior and all of the other letters that follow with this. There's many people who have lost their jobs because they would not acquiesce. There's many people that have faced ridicule. They have faced consequence because of this, because they would not speak in a way that is contrary to what the Bible declares about human sexuality. And when we see a passage like this, we must remember this, that we must be willing to trust God at his word, knowing that in Christ you have more than the entirety of this world could grant to you. You could be the wealthiest man in the world and the poorest man in heaven is of greater wealth, is of greater standing than the wealthiest person here on this earth. I pray that you would believe that. I, I pray that you would you'd trust that. I pray that you would be willing to suffer for Jesus, that you would be willing to be even inconvenienced. This was inconvenient for them. I can guarantee you the apostles going out bringing no provisions whatsoever. There is a natural stress that was there. There is a natural inconvenience that was there. Not even bringing with them a water bottle. Not bringing with them food. Not bringing with them any money whatsoever. They were uncomfortable. And so it was with the Israelites. Don't miss that. There were miracles happening all around the Israelites. There was, there, there was the, the light at night that was there, which was incredible. There was the manna that was falling from heaven. There was water that was coming out of rocks. Their clothes were not wearing out. Their shoes were not wearing out. But mind you, they were very inconvenient. They were not sitting in the lap of luxury as they walked around the wilderness. But the Lord was providing for them as they were going forward. And the Lord provided for them as they went in to conquer the promised land. And the same is true here. The apostles were being supported and provided for by the Lord and walking in accordance to what he had commanded them. And likewise for you, dear friends. The Lord will provide for you, even if it costs you your job, even if it costs you your livelihood, even if it costs you your standing, it costs you your reputation in the world, even if it costs you, if it even gets to that place in this culture, even if it costs you your life, the Lord will provide. The Lord will give to you all that you need. The dependence is upon the Lord. It's not in our scheming. It's not in us just sitting around trying to figure it out. It's not in us being a think tank trying to figure out how we're going to do all this. This this is the Lord is working. We are to be faithful in this regard. We see this idea in the fifth verse of Luke 9 of knocking the dust off from your feet. It says, and whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. They had to depend on the Lord for the results as well. They depended on the Lord for the ends as well as the means. Leon Morris makes this point to help us understand this idea of knocking the dust off from your feet. He says, there was a rabbinic idea that the dust of Gentile lands carried defilement and strict Jews are said to have removed it from their shoes whenever they returned to Palestine from abroad. The disciples shaking of the dust from their feet declared in symbol that the Israelites who rejected the kingdom were no better than the Gentiles. They did not belong to the people of God. 
They could not just say we are children of Abraham. We are sons of God. They can't say that about themselves because they are violating. They are speaking against. They are not accepting the one that God has sent. They are not accepting the promised one who has come forward. And they were to trust in the Lord even in the results Their responsibility was merely to give the message. Their responsibility was merely to trust in the Lord. They were dependent upon the Lord for the ends as well as the means. And the same with us, dear friends. We we, we must trust in the means that the Lord has given. We we must trust in the provision that the Lord has given. We, We must not dress up the church in ways that make it more appealing to the culture. We're not commanded to do so. We must not go and walk in ways that that contradict what the scriptures say that we should do. I know some of you are new here and some of you have perhaps the service is a little bit different. Perhaps the music is, is a little bit different. Perhaps it's not as entertaining as other places that you have been to, but I assure you this is very consistent for Reformed Baptist churches. What is beautiful about true religion, what is beautiful about Christianity, what is beautiful about worship that is is rightly to be ordered, as we understand this to be regulative worship. Only that which God says is worship, we understand to be worship. And this is what is so beautiful, that I and my family were in Costa Rica visiting some churches that we support, and we were down in Costa Rica. It is a completely different culture. There are many, many differences between Houston, Texas, and Liberia, Costa Rica, or San Jose, Costa Rica. But when you went into the church, it was almost exactly the same. The language was different. Perhaps there may be slightly different instruments, but the order of service was almost exactly the same. The elements of the service absolutely were the same. We had singing, we had praying, we had reading, we had teaching, we had preaching. There was baptism, there was the Lord's Supper. These are all the elements that they had. Because the Lord says, these are worship. And just as they were given specific commands regarding the tabernacle on how it is they were to build it, and they were not to deviate with them, so it is with us in the church. We are not to deviate in these methods regardless of what culture you're in. And you end up with an order of worship that is very similar regarding where you are in the world. Because it is not dependent on any particular culture. The culture is not telling the church how it is that she should act. The culture is not telling the church how it is that she should behave. We've seen that over the last couple of years where magistrates thought they could dictate to the church how it is that she should worship, dictate to the church when she can be open, how many people can come and how they can behave. Not so in the church of God. The government has their own sphere of authority, and here we have our sphere, and this is the church, and we must run the church, we must operate the church in the way in which God has commanded us. Even when it seems absurd in our culture to operate in that way, we must walk in obedience, trusting in God that he would provide for us. So we've seen the defeating the works of Satan, proclaiming the kingdom of God as they went forward, showing Jesus' power over Satan and his minions, showing the defeat of Satan as they are going forward, proclaiming the kingdom of God, Caruso declaring that to be true. But as they went out, 
There was a dependence upon the word of God while proclaiming the kingdom of God. They were trusting in what Jesus had said. They were trusting that God would provide for them just as the Israelites went forward into the wilderness, just as the Israelites went forward into the promised land to take, take a hold of it and to defeat the Canaanites. They were to trust in the Lord just as well. What sense does it make to march around a city many times over to defeat a people? That is a terrible battle plan, unless that's what the Lord's commanded you to do. And that is exactly what they were commanded to do. And they walked in faithfulness, and the Lord provided a defeat for them, for the walls came down. And so it is for us that we must be trusting. We must not be ashamed of the gospel regardless of what the culture says, we must be trusting in the word of God, trusting in the means that God has provided, and trusting in God's provision as we walk in obedience. And thirdly, we see the dumbfounded pagans under the proclamation of the kingdom of God. We see Herod, Herod as being perplexed, not understanding what is going on, realizing that there are things happening in his kingdom that he is seeking to take prophets out, and it is not expanding his reign, expanding his rule, but rather the work of God is continuing to happen. God is doing his work apart from Herod. Herod's not one that he needed in order to do his work. God is working through the hearts of men to accomplish his good purpose, and the reign of Christ is being declared amongst the people. Look at verses 6 through 9 in Luke chapter 9. It says, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This is greatly offensive to Herod. I mean, who do you think I am? You're going about and doing this. You're not paying me a special visit. I'm not being respected in the ways in which I should be respected. Don't get that wrong. He was greatly offended when John spoke truth to him, when John called him out and said he had taken his brother's wife and married her. That was a sinful behavior on his part. And John lost his head because of his faithfulness to God in this respect. But they didn't even swing by the palace. They didn't come by. They didn't visit Herod. It, he wasn't part of their plan. But, but mark this as well. Herod, you need to understand, this is a family dynasty. One of the, one of the things that you have to do when you're going through a study uh, biblically is to understand which Herod is which because you have three different Herods within the scriptures and you have even more Herods that aren't in the scriptures and understanding which one is which. This is a dynasty that was ruling, and they were allowed to rule in this area. He was allowed to rule as a tetrarch. He was allowed to be declared as a, a king, even. Not something you could normally do in the Roman Empire, but they were very good. Think of them like, like, like a mafia don, like one who was, had, had a family business in this area, and they were running things and taking care of business for the Romans, and that is who they were. But mind yourself this, he had his own religion. He had his own connection. I don't doubt one bit that he had a connection with the high priest, and he was allowed to think that he was in a good standing with God, um, you know, through the ways in which he, he was acting. But conscience is a reality. 
I can't help but think that his conscience was affecting him. He was perplexed here. He knew the ways in which he acted was sinful. We know that he was not wanting to put John to death because of the consequences of what would happen. We know as well that he knows putting John to death was wrong and was sinful, but he ended up having to do it because he was pressured. But the conscience is a reality, and the declaration of the law of God is there. But you don't even need the Bible. You don't even need the Bible to tell you the law of God. We will all stand before the Lord guilty if we stand before the Lord in our own righteousness. Romans 1 speaks of this in many ways, but I want to emphasize verses 18 and 19 of Romans chapter 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Then he goes on to talk about the attributes of God and as they are declared within the creation that God brought into existence. And although it is damaged, the conscience is damaged, although our understanding of morality is damaged, there is enough light that is there in the creation and in our hearts and in our minds that we, it's not only there, all right, we're also able to interpret it and understand these realities so that we end up living hypocritically when we seek to establish our own righteousness, where it's like, well, it's okay for me to steal here, but someone else better not take my car. It's okay for me to take this person's life here, but then over here, my family should be well protected. We have that very clearly communicated in the laws that we have within this society. It is illegal to take the life of another person. However, if that other person is in the womb, you are free to take that person's life. It is legal and it is allowed in every single state in the union, you can take the life of another person, especially if you are the mother of that child. But God's law is communicated within general revelation. J.C. Ryle makes this point. He says, conscience is a most powerful part of our natural constitution. It cannot save our souls. It never leads a person to Christ. It is often blind and ignorant and misdirected, yet conscience often testifies against sin in the sinner's heart. It makes him realize that it is wrong to reject God. Happy are those who found the only cure for a bad conscience. Nothing will ever, ever heal it except for the blood of Christ. Remember, I think we might have talked about it in Sunday school today, but one of the uses of the law is to act as a mirror, that you can look at that law and recognize that you fall short. That's one of the consequences that happen. People hear the law of God and they become very concerned. They begin to say, well, who do you think you are telling this to me? Are you perfect? No, I'm not perfect. I'm telling you what the law is. I'm not saying I've kept the law perfectly. I'm telling you what the law is. This is the law of God, that you must be obedient to God's law in word and thought and deed and even have the right intention and motive in doing it. To violate that in any way is to break the law of God. You say, well, nobody's perfect. Yeah, that's our problem. That's our problem. And it's to rightly diagnose this and recognize that we have no hope in ourselves. Now, I am certain that Herod was involved in false religion. All men everywhere are. They justify their sins. False religion seeks to appease the conscience. It seeks to tell you that you have peace with God when there is no peace. But I want you to see Herod and where he is, that Jesus is reigning, the apostles are going forward, they're declaring the kingdom of God, the work of God is being done, Satan is being crushed, 
under uh, the head of Satan is being crushed at this point as they are going out and going forward. But there is no rest for the wicked. Herod believed he could use his power and influence to control the world. He believed he could use his reign and rule to control that which was under him. But it gave him no rest. We see that in verse 9. John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Was he truly seeking Jesus? Where he just knocked off the, the prophet that came before Jesus, the one that was the forebear, the one who was declaring who Jesus is, the, the forerunner of Jesus? No, Herod is like all of those who know not Christ. They have no rest. I hope you've seen this in some of the, we've been singing psalms lately, and understand, I know you may be reading it like, what's this worship song? What are we doing here? No, that's actually a psalm, and it's a psalm that the people of God have been singing for, for many, many centuries, and it comes directly from the scriptures, and so it speaks of the reality and the consequences of those who are walking in disobedience to God's law that are not submitting themselves to God's rule. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21 communicates this idea of there not being any rest or, or, or even Herod being perplexed at this time. It says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There was no peace for Herod at this time. He would use all of his might, all of his effort to seek to justify himself, to seek to silence even those that were pointing out his own sin that was clear that was being you know communicated there should have been other people that said something to Herod besides just John the Baptist but Herod's one that did not come to faith he is one who placed Jesus upon the cross I want you to close with this though and remember this reality that first Corinthians 1 and verse 18 says this about the cross says this about the gospel as Paul said earlier in Romans, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our trust is in the gospel. Our trust is in the cross of Christ Jesus. If you were to think of the most absurd way you could possibly think whereby a, someone would, would, would declare themselves to be God and a ruler in the first century, in first century Rome, in first century Palestine, one of the most absurd ways that would happen is by them dying upon the cross. They were declared to be accursed by the ceremonial law. It was the highest form of uh, capital punishment they had within Rome. It was excruciating. It was a curse word. If you were to say the word cross at the Roman dinner table, you would, get your, you would get your hands slapped most likely. It was something that was not to be declared. And yet God used the cross whereby we, are, we, we could be saved. So that you can't look at this as something that, that some men just got together. I know you've heard the story. Some, some powerful men got together and, and created the Bible and made up this story and declared it outward. That is one of the most absurd ideas. That these men would get together and then there would end up being 120 people. And they would all get together and just lie about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then they would pretty much all die themselves. That would be the plan. 
But that was the plan, and that is what God did. And this message spread throughout the known world at that time. The message spread even up into Spain, up into northern Europe. The message spread eastward all the way over to India. This declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ was declared, and it is confirmed by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people that God awakens. And that's the only message that you have. It's the only message that you have, one whereby you can but trust in God alone, one whereby only God alone can get the glory. And that is my prayer for you, that you would see the greatness of sin and the seriousness of sin, the hopelessness we have, the hopelessness we have apart from what God has provided to us. Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is reigning, and Jesus is ruling, and all of us will give an account for how we live our lives. We have broken his law in so, so many ways, but he has made a means whereby you can be saved if you will but trust in him, understanding that he has taken upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God, that it may not fall upon you if you trust in him, and he has walked in obedience to the moral law in every way that you may be clothed in his righteousness that you can stand before the Lord in perfect righteousness and you will not be able to boast for just as the apostles went out and trusted in the word of the Lord trusted in the Lord's message and his command here that they would be provided for you must trust alone in Jesus Christ and his provision and his righteousness for if you bring anything of your own you will but distort and damage that perfect righteousness you can add nothing to perfection Trust in Jesus, believe upon him, repent of your sins. Dear friends, you will be saved, you will have 